you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. How exactly does an artist find their way into bacteriology? How are gratitude and top fuel dragsters related? What truly drives us at Tabletop Inventing? What is the difference between useful and meaningful information? Merry Christmas, Innovation Nation. If you celebrate Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Winter Solstice, or even Festivus, I sincerely hope that this time of year puts a smile on your face and a spring in your step. I have always loved Christmas since I was a kid. My favorite part of the season, though, actually had more to do with the anticipation and the time off from school. In the weeks leading up to winter break, my teachers always played stories about how Bobby saved all his pennies to get Susie a doll, or how Rachel and Matthew went door-to-door singing carols and someone found out they weren't going to have a very Merry Christmas and decided to invite them in, calling their whole family in for Christmas dinner as well. It was the stories of people being kind and generous that really fired my imagination. Truthfully, I've always liked this time of year because I have hoped that we might actually be more kind and caring and giving as a result of the season. Looking out at the culture, I'm not sure whether this is true or not, but I'm still rooting for the kind people like my friend Patrick. He and his family get together with a local peace officer on Christmas morning, and they take gifts to families the officer knows are not destined for a very Merry Christmas. I rode along with them for the last couple of years, and it is absolutely my favorite part of the season. A couple of years ago, I also had an opportunity to drive down to Tijuana, Mexico between Christmas and New Year's with my friend Darren. We loaded up his car with all the gifts we could fit into his boat, (coughs) I mean car, sorry Darren. Many of his friends had helped to buy and wrap gifts for the kids at a little church just east of Tijuana. It was a transformative experience with jarring juxtapositions. On the one hand, all the kids had a blast getting new toys and having cookies and candy and goodies from Darren's friends. Yet, on the other hand, we visited the home of some of Darren's good friends there and standing in their living room, I realized that their whole house might actually fit in my living room, dining room, kitchen area. I don't think of myself as rich, But I have been told that just living in America makes us one of the richest people on the planet, in the top 5% actually. So just by living three hours further north of Darren's friends in Mexico, I am one of the richest people on the planet, even if I only made $20,000 a year, which is on the borderline for poverty wages in America. Last week, we talked about the tabletop inventing core value learning how to learn. This week I want to take a deeper dive on our core mission because it just seems like the right time of year to bring it up. On on our website we say our mission is to inspire a new generation to create, innovate, and change the world. To us, those are not just words on a page. At Tabletop Inventing we take that mandate very seriously. The single greatest untapped resource on the planet is our children. Kids have the ability to look past the things that normally divide us, to see things in a new light. 
they don't really care as much about our societal conventions. They just see things we don't. Yet in school, we treat these powerful little innovators as if they don't understand mu as much as we do about the world. Because the world is a dangerous place. You might get hurt out there. Take care of yourself. No one else will. Take your share first or there might not be any left. People are just really bad at the core. And a host of other negative messages. Well, I'm not a theologian or a psychologist, so I'm not really qualified to say whether any of that is true or not. However, I know without a doubt that the thoughts in our mind control the actions we live out. And I believe the only hope for the future is to educate youth to think differently. Every child has the possibility of having deep insights into the universe. Einstein, for instance, was once a child, but if he had not been given freedom and fierce independence by his family and friends at a young age, he might never have known about the strange proclivities of the natural world. His discoveries are the basis for relativity and parts of quantum mechanics. It is entirely possible that I would not be recording this podcast right now on my computer. You would not be listening in on your phone, and neither of us could then converse on our Facebook page afterward without the contributions of Einstein. Or was it his parents' influence? Or perhaps his personal instructors? Or maybe the people who influenced them? Truthfully, we can't divine out other alternative timelines in the universe yet, but we do know that people in Einstein's life, in our timeline, chose to encourage his creativity and independent thought. Later in life, he said, a society's competitive advantage will come not from how well its schools teach the multiplication and periodic tables, but from how well they stimulate the imagination and creativity. The greatest discoveries of the 20th century were made possible because someone encouraged imagination and creativity in a 12-year-old. This is precisely why we do what we do the way we do it at Tabletop Inventing. Our mission is not to stuff more knowledge into the mind or to better standardize learning. Quite the opposite. We believe the key to radical, vibrant, world-changing behavior in the next generation will spring fresh from the minds of creative, innovative youth encouraged to imagine and build. Our mission is possible because every single child is different. There are no two humans alike. The laws of DNA combinatorics and statistical probability practically eliminate the thought. Our children are each valuable and unique. Standardized tests simply don't work well because there are no standardized kids. Our best hope for the future, then, is to encourage differences. Bite our tongue when their crazy ideas probably won't hurt anyone. Put some of the unknown back into learning. Foster wonder and excitement. Bring art back into the classroom. And a host of other activities to encourage creativity, curiosity, and innovation. Hard work and discipline are often necessary parts of innovation. But discipline is not simply doing the same thing over and over in a standardized method. Discipline is doing what is hard whether you like it or not because it will bring a reward later. I'm not going to jump into the discipline conversation today, but discipline and creativity go hand in hand on the way to innovation. We absolutely positively must rethink education. 
We've got to stop trying to get standardized results. There is no such thing as standardized when it comes to biology. Statistically, it is an impossibility. Unfortunately, I can't talk about the complexities of the microbiome today either, even though it is mentioned in the interview with Liz Heineke. I'll link a video though, just to whet your appetite. Back to the point. We must accept that biology, psychology, and human problem solving are unique endeavors requiring creativity, curiosity, and uniqueness embedded in every human being. The tabletop inventing mission then is to inspire a new generation to create, innovate, and change the world. It's a compass we use to remind us that every single student is unique and valuable. These students, properly encouraged and inspired, will be able to explore and change their world and perhaps even their solar system or galaxy. I'm with Elon Musk on this one. We need to look up and out. There's a universe out there waiting to be explored by curious, creative, innovative world changers. Here today to talk about science, curiosity and creativity is our guest Liz Heineke, the kitchen pantry scientist. Liz took a non-traditional approach to science. She started off as an art major with a biology minor and then got a job working in a lab and after and over the course of about 10 years uh, she describes this experience of falling in love with science and along the way she got a master's in bacteriology from UW-Madison and not too long ago she decided to become a stay-at-home mom but she could not resist the beauty and fun of science. So Liz, tell us a little more about yourself. Ah, uh, well, I was pretty lucky as a kid because my, my dad is a physicist so he never traditionally taught us science, but I grew up, you know, collecting rocks, and if I was interested in insects, he'd help me put together an insect collection. So I've always had science in my life, whether it's traditional or, or untraditional, and I, I hope that continues. So tell us a little bit about bacteriology for our listeners. What, what does the bacteriology involve? Well, it involves the study of microbes that are single cell organisms, bacteria. When I got my degree, I was actually working in a medical microbiology lab and I was actually studying a fungi called Histoplasma capsulatum, that's an AIDS pathogen. I never took microbiology in college, but what I discovered when I started doing hands-on microbiology in a lab is that it's a fascinating story. It's this medical microbiology, it's this constant battle between microbes or cooperation and our bodies. And I was very fascinated with the way that researchers try to find new tools in the arsenal of um, human cells and weapons that bacteria and um, other microbes use to fight our bodies so they can look for um, targets for drugs and immunization. I don't know that I had a deep appreciation uh, for microbiology and the complexity that exists in microbiology until very recently. I read a, a little book by a guy by the name of Bill Costerton called The Biofilm Primer. Have Have you read anything cool. about biofilm? Has that I evolved have... a little bit since where you were in the field? Oh, it's evolved a lot since I was in the field, you know, 14 years ago. But, um, yeah, I know a little about bio, biofilms. They're fascinating. Bacterial communication and cooperation. It's very cool stuff. 
Yeah, one of the things that I guess I wasn't aware of, and as physicists, this really appeals to me, this idea that you might have a colony of bacteria and you might have uh, these little nanowires that run through the colony, and the wires mm-hmm. can be hundreds of bacterial widths long. So if you stuck bacteria, a hundred of them, you know, end to end, yep. those wires might be very, very long. And they use these wires, it looks like, to communicate back and forth like a telecom system. And that sounds a lot more complex to me than what what I was, you know, taught as a kid growing up, you know, simple single-celled organisms. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I was fascinated. Sometime go online and look at how bacteria, some bacteria propel themselves using flagella. It's basically a little motor that's run by electrons that turns this long whip-like structure that that move bacteria. I mean, it's it's amazing. It almost looks like something you would expect to see on a robot. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a video uh, not too long ago. I think it was from Harvard, and they were describing some of the uh, cellular functions. And as a physicist, you know, having worked uh, for the Navy a little bit, working with the engineers for a while, I'm looking at this portrayal of what's happening inside of a cell. And about halfway through, this realization just gripped me that I was looking at a nanofactory. Like, it wasn't, it's not just, you know, goo, you know, floating around inside <laughs> of, you know, um, some sort of a jelly wall. It's actually a, a highly complex chain of events that's you know moving proteins from point a to point b or grabbing some dna and you know moving it from you know using it to replicate some some new structure that they need the only word i can use is it it freaked me out i guess (laughs) as a physicist i i couldn't possibly begin to try to understand what's inside of these cells i mean it is so complex i i think when i graduated you know my, my bachelor's in physics i just had this misconception about biology and now you know like i said earlier i just i have this deep appreciation particularly for biologists that deeply understand uh their particular area and what's going on because there is such complexity in i hate to say even in microbiology because microbiology <laughs> is one of these things that i mean just has grown over the past 20 years to this there's a huge wealth of knowledge in the field now about you know, these things that we used to think were simple, you know, single-celled organisms that now, uh, what is that I read in Bill Costerton's book? I, if you culture a bacteria in a, in a Petri dish, mm-hmm. they'll jettison like 70% of their DNA because they don't need it. Oh, really? I didn't know that. And, I'm going to have to read his book. Well, and, and so the only way to really know what's going on in the real world is to study biofilms in situ. You can't actually pull them out and culture them and expect to know really what's going on inside the colonies. Oh, that's absolutely true, yeah. And, you know, he's just, I mean, just, his his book is fascinating. So if you haven't read it, you, you'll get more out of it than I did because you're, you know, you're a bacteriologist. I probably missed about half of what was there. Um, but the little bit that I did get was completely fascinating. I, I loved the whole thing. Yeah, well, and I'm especially fascinated right now um, with the microbiome and and how they're discovering more and more about the relationship between the microbes in our bodies and the way we function and human health. I think it's just, the the field is just exploding, and I can't wait to to keep seeing what they find. So exciting. Well, I think it's excellent that you're taking this enthusiasm and using it in this, this new book that you have and doing kitchen pantry science, to have that right? Uh, with your yep, kids. Yeah, that's right. I think I think that's excellent. Tell us a little bit about that. So my my book is really a compilation of experiments my kids and I have 
done over the last four or five years. And we have just had a great time exploring all, all different types of um, science from microbiology, which is my own, you know, personal love, to physics and chemistry, which sometimes I struggle with as an elementary and high school and even college student. And it's been great for me to sort of repeat some of those experiments. And it's been exciting for my kids. And I've been so impressed with, and I talk about this in the book, just the creativity that, that kids have. I've taken a lot of traditional experiments and sort of tailored them to make them, the idea behind my book is to do science at home, use things you have around the house. You don't have to go out and buy a bunch of stuff. You don't need a kit to do science. Um, it's to go to your kitchen table, take an experiment, and, and try to make it work using what you have around. So I've been amazed with my kids' creativity. We've made up some entirely new experiments, and sometimes I'll have the idea, but then my kids will make the idea better. They'll think that's, of some other thing we really could cool. try. For example, I, I wanted to do a diffusion experiment with gelatin and food coloring. So I had this kind of fun experiment that we did where you made a thin layer of gelatin in a you know <laughs> cookie sheet or whatever. I love you it. Poke, you poke holes in it with a straw. You drip food coloring in it. And it's, it's a nice experiment because it's colorful, and kids can actually watch the, the food coloring diffuse. They can say, do the different colors diffuse at the same rate? Does, they can put a pan in the fridge and say, does that slow it down or speed it up? But my daughter had the great idea to get a cookie cutter and cut shapes. Once it had diffused, it looked so pretty. She said, what if we cut shapes out? And then she stuck one up on the window. And that was so great because then it became an evaporation experiment. <laughs> an art project for kids now. But then the, the windows, the gelatin eventually dries up it's thin, it peels off, and it drops off the window, and it looks like shrinky dinks. So it's just so, <laughs> so you, cool on so many different levels. Them? Yeah, then we, of course, <laughs> we absolutely did that. Then you see what happens when you put them in water, and they rehydrate. So it's all different kinds of science that you're exploring, but it's also creative. So you took gelatin. Yes. And you put food coloring in it, and you observed diffusion. Then yes. you cut that out with a cookie cutter and stuck it on a window and observed evaporation. Yes. And then they eventually come off the window. Maybe even you can you know think about adhesion perhaps. And, oh, yeah. And then you can rehydrate them and look at other – I that's fabulous. I, I, I love it. You know, kids learn all different – have different learning styles. And some kids love artistic, the colorful aspect of things. Other kids love the tactile element. And this has it all. It has color. It feel, you know, gelatin feels really cool. So it, I think it's great if you have things like that that are memorable because then the kid will, kids remember doing it and they associate science with fun, which is huge. Wow. I didn't think much about diffusion, actually, because I, I never thought much about uh, gas interactions or liquid interactions. And I kind of went off into uh, lasers in my graduate work. But the only interaction I remember actually physically thinking about diffusion was some large equation that I didn't like in graduate school. <laughs> but this sounds like a lot more fun. I would actually do this. Well, see, because I'm an experimentalist and and the equations are fun and you use them, like if you're going to look for a, a phenomenon, you want to determine is it phenomena A or phenomena B and then so you take some measurements and you draw the curve and you know phenomena A follows a you know, x squared and phenomena b follows a logarithmic curve, and so you can tell which it is, or, you know, or something like that. Right. 
so that was fun because I enjoyed you know doing the experiments and measuring things. But I was never the guy that really liked uh, pushing the equations in and out with all of the you know calculus and you know algebra and things that are required to actually you know manipulate the equations. I could do it you know at at gunpoint, but 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 it really was <laughs> kind of at gunpoint. I had to do that. But in the lab, I just loved doing stuff. So dropping food coloring on gelatin, I, I, that's doable. I could do that. That was that would be fun. You could do that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so so what gave you, I mean, other than the fact that you've been doing this all along, what gave you the idea to do the book? Well, you know, when I first started my website, I thought, oh, this would be great to do a book. And I sent out some query letters, but no one was interested. So, you know, I do this because I love it and I'm passionate about it. So I just kept doing it. And a few years later, Corey Books actually called me and said, hey, we want to um, have a science book in our hands-on family series. Would you be interested in writing it? And I said, you know, I looked at their work. It was exactly how I wanted to do a book. It's colorful. There are colorful pictures of kids having fun doing science, and their format was great. I said, sure, let's do it, and I'm thrilled with the way it turned out. Well, that's that's excellent. I, I've heard lots of different stories in the publishing realm, and that's a good one. So when the book actually came back, how'd that feel? <laughs> it felt great. I mean, the whole process, the, the writing and photographing all the experiments went pretty quickly. And then you just kind of wait and wait and wait. And then when it comes back, you just, it's, it's a fantastic feeling to see. You know, for me, it was sort of the culmination of several years of work that I had already been doing. And the kids in it are mostly my kids' friends and my um, friends' kids and neighbor kids and so it's great for me too it's almost like a, a yearbook of you know all these fantastic kids that I get to hang out with all the time so what did the kids think about seeing themselves in a book oh they liked it they thought it was cool I had them all autograph their pictures in my book and they... <laughs> that's cool like, kind of like a yearbook that's awesome yeah and I think it's you know it's memorable for them they'll they'll be able to say I was in a science book and they, they loved doing the experiments when we were photographing the book. I think anything that gives kids a positive association with, with doing science is great. So I'm going to shift gears now. Uh, we always do this somewhere in, in here, and it, it's not a big shift today because we're already talking about kids and education um, and science. We can go out now and look things up on Wikipedia. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, I'm a physicist, and I look things up on Wikipedia all the time. You know, I go and I Google things. And you can just find out things that you couldn't have known without going to the library and doing a significant amount of research. It's possible to give us a false sense of how much we actually know, having that much knowledge at our fingertips. In that environment, what, what does it mean uh, to have an education? What does it mean to be educated? That's a good question. I think what it means to be educated means to have, to have had you know, information like the kind you can find on the Internet but to have combined it with experience, hands-on experiences that are relevant to you or your family or the world you live in, and, and being able to remember that information, to interpret it, and to use it to, in order to you know, make good decisions about your life. I think that's why information in itself is useful, but it may not be meaningful. So if you look up the word we talked about diffusion. If you look up the word diffusion, you may see a brief explanation and perhaps an equation that you don't want to deal with. But if you go to your kitchen table and do this experiment with jello and food coloring, 
you're going to remember that diffusion is a word that perhaps defines the way that a substance will move from one area into another area. And it'll stick with you. It will become part of your experience rather than just something that you looked at once and instantly forgot. Useful versus meaningful. Uh, you were the first person to bring that up, actually, in, in that way. And that, that's a great way to say that because knowledge is useful. The information is useful, particularly if it's, you know, if there's a purpose for grabbing it and, you know, plugging it in somewhere. But I hadn't thought about the idea that information should also be meaningful when it comes to the education process. And I guess that's a natural thing to think now, obviously. <laughs> the dawn of a new ideas hitting my brain now. And putting your hands on the experiments, or in our case, you know, thinking about engineering, putting your hands on the technology and using it, mm -hmm. does completely change how a student views the knowledge. Yes, and it changes the way perhaps they'll use that information. I don't, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I would assume that you're using different pathways when you're actually physically doing something, you know, with your muscles and with your fingertips and using your eyes versus just looking at a word on, on a page or on a screen. I, I bet if you looked into that, there's probably some fMRI studies out there that, that look into that where you can see different parts of the brain lighting up based oh, on I'm whether, sure you're, there are, yeah. whether you're manipulating something or just thinking about it. In fact, something's catching in the back of my brain that I read something about that not too long ago. So with this thought in our minds of you know hands-on changing the way we interact with the world, um, tell me a little bit about your experience uh, with your with your kids and you know maybe tell us a story or two about uh, when you saw light bulbs come on when they read something in a book versus uh, touching something in the kitchen. What's interesting I was actually um, talking to them this morning and this is more at school but they both talked about a particular year in school my daughter's taking that class right now but it's a science class and she said <laughs> you know they have been experimenting at my kitchen table for years she said you know, all we've gotten to do in this class is, you know, this one thing. And I, I actually can, can't even remember what it was, but it was, you know, probably something like dropping a penny in a cup to look at displacement of water or something. She said, I just wish we could do more experiments. And that's, that's my, <laughs> both of my kids have said that. They, and, and, you know, this class, they're, I was thinking about this, you know, my daughter learned about volcanoes. Well, that's great, but if they <laughs> if they were learning about volcanoes and pressure building up and exploding out of something, if if each if their teacher would give them each a water bottle and let them put vinegar in and then put baking soda in, they could see. I mean, and you, they could talk about that carbon dioxide gas is made in this reaction. That's one of the gases that comes from volcanoes. I think this class in particular maybe is could be taught in a, a more hands-on narrative way. So tell the kids the story of Krakatoa. Show them some of the pictures of the paintings people made of the sunsets when, when Krakatoa exploded. There were these spectacular, crazy sunsets. I don't know if it's true. Some people say that Mooks the Scream, you know, that wild background. Some people say that was a Krakatoa sunset in the background. Kids want to get their hands into things. And if you just stand up in front of a classroom and lecture to kids, some kids will learn, but even the kids who are learning won't be as involved in the learning. So that's, I, w I was just surprised. I'm not that surprised, I guess, but to hear my kids say, oh, I just wish we could do more experiments instead of just 
writing in notebooks and, and hearing people talk about stuff. It makes it more memorable, I guess, like what we were just talking about. And it makes it more interesting if you're physically doing something rather than just sitting, listening. Well, I, I can't help it. Uh, I, I just got bit with an idea that I need to ask you uh, to reflect on uh, maybe out loud here. Your experience in the lab was that you fell in love with the science once you started doing it. How much do you think you understood science before you got in the lab, before you put your hands on it? How much did you understand about the process of science? I mean, other than, you know, let's measure one variable and let's, you know, uh, look at the outcomes or whatever. How much did you understand about the process before you started doing it? How much did you understand about the process after you started doing it? Maybe reflect also on your experience watching your kids with that. Yeah, despite the fact that I had taken so many science classes, it it really wasn't until I got into the lab and got my hands into the experiments and started keeping a notebook that was day-to-day -day notebook, keeping track of what we were doing and what we were changing. I didn't really understand what scientists do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think something that really changed it for me was actually doing the science, so I had the hands-on aspect, but then at the same time, I was constantly going to these you know, lunch seminars, hearing the stories of different people's projects and how they were using the same techniques that I was using to make discoveries about whatever they were interested in. I mean, it's all these experiences and information coming together that makes it interesting. And I didn't really have that just by taking classes. You know, I had a couple of good classes with cool labs. I remember one great professor that had a lab that was really relevant, really exciting, interesting. He was a charismatic teacher. But for the most part, it was listening to lectures and then going into labs and, you know, waiting in line to use the pipette or whatever. So for me, it was getting my hands into things in the lab at the same time that I was hearing people's stories. So, you know, narrative science combined with hands-on science is what made it really fascinating for me. And my kids, too. I mean, when we're doing science at the kitchen table or when I go out to work with Girl Scout troops or school groups, they love when I say, um, you know, this is baking soda. Does anyone know what we use this for? Oh, we use it for to bake cookies. And then I tell them, you know, the scientific name for it. I say, this is vinegar. Does it taste sweet or sour? Oh, it tastes sour, pickles, and, you know, it's acetic acid. And suddenly something that's sciencey becomes part of real life, something that they see every day or something that they use when they're baking cookies. And I think that relevance makes it more interesting for them and more memorable. And I think that it helps, like I said, what, everything I do is to try to get kids engaged and excited about science through hands-on stuff and through one thing I love about doing science at home, and but teachers obviously can do this at school too, is giving kids freedom to experiment. So if we're done with the experiment and there's some leftover baking soda and vinegar, I'll let them go ahead and mix it together. Because they, they want to say, well, what if I pour this back into here? Say, sure, do it. Giving kids the freedom to come up with new ideas and try stuff makes it more interesting and relevant. And I think ultimately when I was working in a lab and doing research, that's what I was doing. I was saying, well, this protocol isn't working very well. What could we change to make it work better? And you try something. So sorry I'm blathering on. but No, you know, <laughs> actually – that that brings up a really important point that we should highlight here because I had a you know similar experience. I mean, I actually never thought much about baking soda and 
uh, vinegar until very recently, actually. I mean, I, I kind of know you put them together and you get, you know, you get carbon dioxide gas out. But recently I was thinking about mixing them and trying to see what, how much do I need of each to get kind of the maximum amount of pressure buildup inside of a, a water bottle? Um, never yep. mind, never mind why I'm doing this. <laughs> Cause I always, there's always a crazy, there's always a crazy story behind it. And so I tried putting a little bit of baking soda and a lot of vinegar. And I uh -huh. tried putting a little bit of vinegar and a lot of baking soda, or maybe I just said that twice the same way. Anyway, I, I varied the ratios to see yeah. which way it was and found out that the excess is typically in the, the vinegar, whatever is whatever active uh, ingredient is there in the vinegar gets used up faster than what the baking soda does. Huh. Um, and I found out that if you fill the bottle most of the way with vinegar and put a little bit of baking soda, you get much more out than if you do it the other way around. Yep. So you're and, doing kit kitchen table science yeah pretty much i mean is it i just i happen to need to know needed to know this for something i was a little idea i had but yeah um what occurs to me of thinking you know hearing you know you tell this story and me thinking through this thing that happened to me recently and then thinking back about my experience because i had a similar experience i mean i went i went through a whole undergraduate program and i can't tell you that i understood much about physics until I got into the lab in graduate school, which is kind of sad that I could get that far in and not know what physics is, but I don't think I really understood what physics was, like what is physics yeah. about, yeah. until I got into the lab and realized, you know, I'm not trying to get the exact answer, I'm trying to get a good enough answer, and that's what physicists do. We try to get a good enough answer because we're so far out in the front of science, but, you know, our job is to, is to, is to see, search the frontiers, you know, we're trying to find out what is the very a hairy edge of what right. we can know about something. And you know, we just don't have enough information to know everything. So we try to make these approximations to get a good enough answer. Mm -hmm. And we excel at that. That's we love to do that. And I guess I didn't really deeply connect with that until graduate school. And so looking back at this, uh, the natural thing for me to ask in my head is why couldn't a third grader or fourth grader know this? Just oh. by just by working with their hands, you know, what is it about? What is what is science? Well, science is you know putting you know trying things kind of <laughs> one at a time and trying to trying to determine. I did this one thing and this other thing happened. Is trying to determine a relationship between some sort of cause and effect. But we never say that. And for some reason, we have to wait until much, much later to realize that. But we could learn that early. Absolutely. I just know the curriculum from what my kids have done. But I think that we tend to oversimplify science for kids. I think they're capable of learning and understanding much more than we think they can. And I think that you can expose them to fairly complex ideas and even if they won't, can't explain to you the specifics or the details about something, they'll get a general idea about the concept, and that may lead them later in life to go back and explore it. So have you read The Invention of Air? By mm -hmm. It's about Joseph Priestley. No, I should probably read that. It sounds interesting. It's fantastic. But he, and it's kind of creepy in a way, as a kid, he loved to put spiders in jars and screw the lid on and see how long it took them to die. So he did this when he was a kid. He was like a sort of kitchen table, you know, backyard scientist as a kid. As an adult, this idea never left his mind. And he started doing more stuff with, you know, mice, actually, which is kind of creepy. But he was the first person to credited with isolating oxygen. It all goes back to this 
idea that he was exploring and experimenting with as a kid that he didn't understand. Like you said, these fuzzy borders, no one understood it at the time. But he knew there was something that went away in this jar that would make the spiders eventually die. And as an adult, they never left him. I'm fascinated by the idea that these explorations we make as children, whether we understand them or not, can go on to spur us to great ideas. As adults, as we've gathered more information and had more experiences, we can start to connect the dots. So I think we should be exposing kids to more complex science and, you know, more, maybe you can call it interesting science or, or engaging science might be a better way to say it. But, you know, in preschool and grade school, you can, you can have them playing with pigments and say, you know, pigments are molecules that give things color. Kids can, I have kids repeat science words after me all the time. Kids can say these big words. You don't have to oversimplify everything. They're smart. And if you live in the Southwest like we do, you just leave the pigments outside for half the school year. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and at the holidays, you, you look at them and you realize, wow, you know, you, and, and you have them painted again with the same paints. You put the paints away and you pull out the same, the same paints. Or you put one in a closet and one outside. And you ask, you know, well, what happened? Right. Yeah, there's so many concepts that, you know, these simple experiments, there are so many, or these simple, this is a real-life application, right? Why did this paint fade? You know, and you can talk about ultraviolet light and radiation. And yeah. Ki and kids are interested. They want interesting stories, too. They don't want to just say, you know, you obviously have to teach them the scientific method and, and show them some simple demonstrations, but the thing that sticks with me, my... My son goes to public school, and he was riding in a – I was driving him and his friend to a basketball game. His friend goes to private school, and they were probably in fourth or fifth grade. His friend said, uh, we dissected a chicken wing today in science class. And Charlie said, oh, really? He said, we dropped pennies in a cup. And I thought, <laughs> I thought that's just not fair. <laughs> Well, chicken so, wings can't be that expensive, right? I mean, it's, it must be no. pretty easy to get a hold of a chicken wing. A lot of elementary teachers probably also don't have science backgrounds, so I, I understand that. But I don't know. I just – I wish that kids could be doing more engaging hands-on science earlier because maybe by the time they get to high school and take a science class, they've already decided science is boring. Yeah, I, I, I have the same feeling about math and physics, and that is unfortunate. Well – we are uh, running low on time. And oh, sorry. So, no, no, this is fun. The problem is if we could sit and continue to have this conversation for a couple more hours, I'm pretty sure. There's a lot here to talk about. But let's wrap it up with this question. Okay. The question we always like to ask all of our guests, the one we uh, kind of bill out as our question, is what is the purpose of an education? Because I think we haven't thought deeply about that um, maybe in our education system lately. And I think that is probably the cause of lots of foolishness that happens. So from your perspective, having seen what you've seen with the experience you have, what is the purpose of an education? So in, in my opinion, the purpose of an education is sort of to, to expose us to and help us understand the natural world, but, but also the human experience, you know, through history and art and music. And um, hopefully... What we glean from our education will help us be productive, happy people and citizens of the world and help us make um, good decisions. 
I think that's a really hard question. Because <laughs> I, I think it's sort of intangible, but I would hope people come away from an education with wisdom. You can look at uh, Wikipedia all day long and not really learn anything. So if you're lucky and you have some good teachers, you'll understand something about what it means to be, you know, human and what it means to be part of society and be able to be a good person. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it comes back to what you said earlier, changing the uh, changing that useful information into meaningful information. Yeah. So it's... I I like it. And we get we get a different answer from everyone on the show a little, you know, some different twist on, you know, what is the purpose of an education. But thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. You, you've definitely <laughs> had a fascinating career and have taken that in some very interesting directions. Uh, as we wrap up, uh, tell our guests how they can get in touch with you and where they can find your website and your book. Sure. My um, website is kitchenpantryscientist.com. And you can find my email address on there if you need to contact me. I have a um, an iPhone, iPod app, free app for kids called Kids Science. It's one word. Um, you can get that on the, the iTunes store. And my book is called Kitchen Science Lab for Kids. And it, you should be able to find it anywhere books are sold. It's in a little bit short supply right now, but um, they're getting a bunch of stock in pretty soon, any day, hopefully. So. Thank you so much, Liz. We'll put these that information in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Steve. And now, today's great inventor secret. Top fuel thinking. I love fast. Anything fast. Cars, planes, motorcycles, skydiving, spaceships, the USS Enterprise anything fast. So it should not surprise you to learn that I am amazed by top fuel racing. There are few things in the planet that accelerate so fast and have such power. Top fuel cars produce up to 10,000 horsepower, can accelerate from zero to over 300 miles per hour in under four seconds and have a top speed around 330 miles an hour. Never mind that the engines cost thirty dollars to $50,000 and can only run for maybe 10 seconds at maximum throttle before completely coming apart at the seams. That kind of power just boggles my mind when the average passenger car only has about 130 horsepower. That means a top fuel car has the power of about 80 normal passenger sedans. I'll link up a couple of pages with top fuel facts in the show notes for the gearheads out there. Back on track here in the podcast. Creativity is just like top fuel racing. It comes on hard and fast and it blazes through the brain leaving a trail of burnt neurons and wild hairs and leaving the mind hungering for more. I love those kind of moments. I would like to live in that type of high power neural state all the time. But then there's reality. The five or ten minutes of wild creativity give way to a smoking, broken mental engine weighed down by thoughts of, it'll never work. How do we get from, this is a great idea, to, it'll never work, in under ten minutes? The answer is in the differences between positive and negative thinking. 
By positive thinking, we are not talking about rah-rah speeches to ourselves. Now, we're actually, we actually mean controlling and curating our responses to life's hiccups. Research has shown that positive thinking gives greater resistance to the common cold, reduces the risk of death by cardiovascular disease, and lengthens your life in general. On the other hand, negative thinking acts like a wet blanket on the mind and can actually lead to a physiological breakdown in the body. Take a look at the show notes today for a couple of articles and a video on that. So how do we change our thinking to be more positive? One of the best ways I know to climb up out of the pit of negative thinking is to exercise the habit of gratitude. Scientists have discovered gratitude to affect overall optimism about life, combat depression, and even improve attitudes and habits regarding physical health. Gratitude helps us see reality in a new light. Instead of seeing a broken old computer, we might see a portal to the internet that could allow us to start a business. Instead of facing the day bleary-eyed, we could wake up early, watch the amazing sunrise, and tackle the day knowing that we've had a fresh start. So here's what we need to do. Go take out a pen, find your calendar wherever it is in your house or on your phone, and write out a note for the second week in January. On that date, come back and listen to this podcast. By that time, the warm glow of the holidays will be faded. The New Year's resolutions will be taking a hit. Then when you get back to the end of this podcast the second time, right here, set your alarm 15 minutes early tomorrow morning. Go find a notebook, label it Gratitude Journal, and put it by your alarm clock with a pen. Then, the next morning, wake up, drag your unwilling carcass out of bed, grab that new journal, and head for the living room. Turn on a single lamp, and in the soft glow of a new day, write down the date and three things for which you feel gratitude. Take a moment to describe why you are grateful for those three things, and put the journal back by the alarm clock, set 15 minutes early, for the following day. Do this every day for six weeks. You will begin to find that this simple habit will blossom out into warmer thinking during the day. Those who live with you will begin to see subtle differences. You'll probably find that the other commuters on their way to work will be less annoying. You will find that your home will be transformed into a lovely little piece of heaven. Even though nothing at all has physically changed other than the neurons in your brain, this little habit of gratitude will supercharge your day just like those top fuel drag racing cars. You'll go rocketing into your day with a smile and much more creativity. Gratitude lifts the mind out of its dark, bored, uncreative rut into a life of wonder, excitement, and possibility. Have you been enjoying the Tabletop Inventing podcast? Have comments or questions you'd like us to address? Contact us and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. 
let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Thank you.